Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard-to-recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. With your host, Jamie Dew. Chief Librarian, Thomas Senna. And featuring, Matt Ardill. And now, Curator of the Hall, Jamie Dew. All right. How are you doing? Welcome to season three. I am Jamie Dew, and it is my pleasure to welcome you inside the SNL Hall of Fame. But before you do, please wipe your feet. The SNL Hall of Fame podcast is a weekly affair. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the career of a former cast member, host, musical guest or writer, and add them to the ballot for your consideration. Once the nominees have been announced, we turn to you, the listener, to vote for the most deserving and help determine who will be enshrined for perpetuity inside the hall. We just finished doing that last week for season two. We announced the class of season two, and it's a banger of a class. You should check that out. It's headlined by Will Ferrell. Norm MacDonald made it in on the second ballot plus many more. You've got to check out episode 20 of season two to find out the whole skinny. But this is season three, and here we are, ready to rock in season three. We've got uh, a, a great lineup of nominees to get to, including this week's nominee, Dana Carvey. What a way to kick off season three, huh? Now, what I'm doing right now is I'm going to walk down the hall and I'm going to go over to Matt's Minutia Minute Corner and talk to Matt over there. Hey, Matt, how are you doing, my friend? Hey, Jamie. Uh, today, I've got the pistachio disguise of, of uh, SNL, Dana Carvey, uh, <laughs> five foot eight, born June 2nd, 1955. Um, yeah, he is an interesting character, cross-country champion, the degree in broadcast communications. Over his period at SNL, he was nominated six times 
for Emmys, received one, and is number 90 on the Comedy Central list of 100 greatest stand-ups of all time. Yeah, and he comes from an interesting family as well. His brother, Brad, who is the basis for Garth, uh, is actually an inventor who invented the video toaster special effects technology. Oh. Uh, so if you watch Babylon 5, you can thank the real-life Garth for the cool special effects. <laughs> uh, yeah. And his, his early roles include bit parts in Halloween 2, and as one of the mime waiters... In this is Spinal Tap. Yes. Uh, reporting to Billy Crystal. He actually was almost the host of Double Dare. He was up for that on Nickelodeon at the same time as he was up for SNL and actually had to refuse the opportunity to host that Nickelodeon classic. Now, after Second City, he, he actually went on to do some pretty incredible career lifting uh, for young comedians on the Dana Carvey show and kind of helped launch the careers of Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Louis C.K., as well as Charlie Kaufman and Robert Carlock. So yeah. Charlie Kaufman of Eternal yeah. Sunshine and Robert Carlock of 30 Rock. Um, yeah. Partner. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, marriage partner, but like a writing partner. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's pretty amazing. And he's got big time fans, I, I guess. I George H.W. Bush loved his impersonation of him <laughs> to the point he invited Dana Carvey to the White House. And Kurt Douglas worked with him in the movie Tough Guys uh, and helped him get over his fear of doing a stunt on top of a train and was so adored by Kurt, he was invited to speak at his 100th birthday party. Really? Yeah. So he's a he, he's a interesting fella dana yeah, absolutely well what do you say we kick it downstairs to our friend thomas senna he's down there with darren patterson yeah that's right we got it downstairs here in the snl hall of fame you thought that this was all upstairs no no there's a downstairs season three spoiler there's a downstairs so let's kick to that right now this is uh thomas senna having a conversation with darren patterson about Dana Carvey. Darren Patterson from the SNL Nerds Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me, Thomas. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, sure thing. So I'm super excited about this episode. One of my all-time favorite cast members. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about Dana Carvey today. Uh, a lot, a lot to get into. So with Dana, I find interesting. He started his tenure at SNL in season 12 when the show was being seriously retooled. So what were your memories, even after the fact, of where SNL was, like in season 11, uh, heading into when Dana and a bunch of other cast members started into season 12? Uh, I think that was probably the season where I started to get into mm. SNL, like I first discovered it. Like I first discovered kind of SNL like years ago when I was like a little kid, like, like you know, back in the 70s. Like I think I remember seeing my dad watch it and they did the... Um, the land shark sketch, mm -hmm. you know, you know, the candy gram. And like, when I first saw that, I thought it was like, it was kind of scary, but also kind of weird <laughs> and silly at the same time. So like, I've always been into SNL since then, but once Dana Carvey kind of came on the scene, that's when I really started to watch it 
more and more just because like he himself is just like so entertaining and there's something about him that i think like younger people just automatically like like his you know mm-hmm. all of his impressions all the characters he brought there's something he brought in like a little bit of i mean maybe he was maybe also he was like he was maybe more mainstream palatable or whatever but he was still had like a kind of a dark weird sense of humor at times but i don't know i, I think once he came in like i don't know it really it really boosted the show up quite a bit, I think. Yeah, yeah, his presence was much needed. I mean, he came in with Phil Hartman, Jan Hooks, Kevin Nealon, kind of that group. Um, John Lovitz and Nora Dunn and Dennis Miller were the holdovers from a pretty, quite frankly, a, a notoriously bad season 11. Yeah. That's when we had like Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey Jr. I mean, no offense to the, those people, but they're quite not quite SNL cast member material i suppose uh so dana you're right he came in i think he and phil and those other cast members breathed a lot of new life into the show um and especially dana for sure and i wanted to start off uh and with with a lot of these we don't necessarily have to go chronologically but i think with dana it actually really fits to start right at the beginning because one of the most popular characters of all time debuted in dana's very first episode and that was the church lady uh so do you have yeah right exactly he debuted the church lady in the his very first episode like talk about coming out with a bang so i mean what do you remember about uh the church lady in particular and some of the early dana stuff uh wow i mean well the earliest dana thing i remember i mean i don't don't know if you want to talk about like uh Mm -hmm. i used to really like uh watching uh like a stand-up comedy on HBO. And I remember Dana was on the uh, HBO Young Comedians show uh, back in the day. And he had this one bit where, it's, you know, we play piano, uh, the Chopping Broccoli song. Yeah. And, like, I think he brought that over. No, he definitely did. He brought that over to SNL. And he had that Chopping Broccoli song, which, like, I don't know, I always got a kick out of that. That's, like, my <laughs> earliest memory of it. Which, yeah. You know, just and- chopping Broccoli. That was actually in that first episode, too. Really? Along with the church lady, uh, that that Derek Stevens character that sang the Chopping Broccoli song, that was in that same episode. Yeah, so just right at the gate, he's just just coming out with heat. And, uh, I mean, mean, we'll get into it uh, later on, but... It's so weird because, like, I, I would think for any SNL cast member, you'd be lucky if you're able to have one reoccurring character that hits with the audience so well, that has a cool catchphrase, that, like, has likability, and is just able to sort of, like, people see you and they automatically have, can say your catchphrase and everything. Like, Dana Carvey, when you really think about it, he had, like, three or four of those characters where they all had catchphrases and people, mm-hmm. I mean, we'll get into it a little bit later. Like I, I kind of wrote them down, but like, yeah, I mean, but with the church lady, 
up top. I mean, well, th- this was also, I guess, around the time where like televangelists were really becoming prominent in culture, you know, Jimmy, Timmy, Faye Bakers and mm-hmm. whatnot. So to have, uh, you know, this guy kind of come out of nowhere during this, doing this character, just called himself the church later. I don't think she ever had a name. I don't think they ever said I think it was name. Enid. Enid. No, it wasn't Enid. Um, because like there was that episode where Fred Savage hosted, mm-hmm. and like Fred Savage came on as the church lady's niece Enid. I think mm-hmm. that was Enid, but like I, I'm not sure if the church lady ever had a name. But anyway, yeah. like he he would just this unknown guy just come out and do this, you know, this church lady impression. You know, isn't that have already have a catchphrase ready? Isn't that special? Have a little smirk on her face, and it's just like right off the rip. It's just like it's very memorable and likable, and just. Get a kick out of it. All righty. Now, now, Joey, you are what is called, I believe, a quarterback. Now, what do you do? Well, I run the offense. Now, how does that work? Well, the center snaps the ball. Oh, oh, is, is that when a heavy set gentleman squats down and passes the pigskin between his thighs where your hands are nestled near his bulbous naughty place? Well, that's that's one way of putting it. Uh, then I try to complete a pass to a tight end who usually goes deep and long, and hopefully we score. Now, do I hear you correctly, Joey? You make a pass at a tight end who likes to go deep and long, and this is how you score. <laughs> that's correct. Well, isn't that special? Uh, and one of the things that I really loved about the church lady that I started picking up more uh, on more so as I got older was just the subtle things about how maybe repressed the church lady actually was this pent up sort of uh, lust, I guess, that was behind <laughs> it all. Because church lady, the kind of a lot of the thing was like shaming whoever was in yeah. big in pop culture at the time. So like you said, mentioned... Like Madonna, you mentioned uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. They had come uh, as uh, Phil Hartman and uh, Jan Hooks. Sean Penn, Rob Lowe. So that was kind of the church lady's thing was to shame people in pop culture. But what I started picking up on as I was watching it as I got older was the pent up, the repressed nature of the church lady. And like, you know, Dana did a lot of, a lot of subtle things like that. Right, yeah, like, th- th- that is true, I didn't even think about that, like, how she did have, the church lady had a sort of holier-than-thou, you know, no pun intended, uh, like, a view <laughs> of the world, and how she would just, she would have guests on just to publicly shame them, and just, you just call them sinners to their face, that's a, that's a, like, just that concept of a talk show is, is funny enough, and yeah, it's, it's all, and she always kind of went into this talk about, like, oh, aren't you, you know, your your hot male buttocks thrusting and like she would he would get into <laughs> yeah. all these odd wordplay about, you know, just you know, sex and fornication. And it was just like, oh my god, what's going on? Yeah, and it was just it was just hilarious to see this this happen. It was just Yeah. And she yeah. she she ended up in one of the in one of the installments later on, she ended up spanking Rob Lowe for being a sinner or something. And right, I think like, I, that was like during the uh, his scandal with the sex tape. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So she was kind of punishing him for that, but you get the sense that the church lady was was getting her thrills <laughs> by huh. uh, by doing that to Rob as well. So where do you want to go from here? What are you, just some of the things that popped out to you about about Dana? Well, I I mean, like I said earlier, 
Like he was a guy who came out, like I said, like it's hard enough for a cast member to come out with one reoccurring character that has a catchphrase that everybody loves and just connects with everybody. And Dana Carvey had three, maybe four, I guess if you mm-hmm. want to count it, this fourth one. He had Hans and Franz. We will Hans pump you up. He had Wayne, Wayne and Garth, Wayne's World. He Garth Algar, Party Time Excellent. Uh, the fourth one, if you want to count it, his impression of George H.W. Bush. Good evening, my fellow Americans. You know, in the past, when I've spoken to you from this office here, the news has always been good, not bad, good. <laughs> Berlin Wall, collapse of communism, that Noriega thing over there, good, good, good. <laughs> it's no wonder I'm up, up around that 80% approval area. <laughs> but now tonight, the news I have to bring to you, it's not good. In fact, it's kind of bad. <laughs> Maybe after you hear it, my, my approval rating will slip down to 75%. <laughs> little joke there for you. You know, he, he, I mean, you could say he, he did. I mean, you can't just say he did. He had like the, the ultimate impression of George W. Bush. Like all the other Bush's impressions were sort of based off his impression. Mm-hmm. You know, not going to do it and wouldn't be prudent and all that stuff. Like, that's all stuff Bush didn't say, but it feels like <laughs> stuff he would have said. And like, exactly. uh, yeah, and like, I mean, he did the impression in front of the actual president, George, you know, George Bush Sr. And George Bush Sr. loved it. I mean, I mean, and also if you want to really get into impressions, I mean, he had a a laundry list of them. Like, uh, let me see what I wrote here. Oh, um, his uh, Jimmy Stewart impression, his... Paul McCartney, Tom Brokaw, mm-hmm. Mickey Rooney, uh, Johnny Carson, his Ross Perot impression, where, you know, you know can I finish, can I finish? Uh, Casey Kasem, the McLaughlin group, which was always, I always loved the McLaughlin group. It was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to count impressions, I mean, he did an impression of a fellow SNL cast member right next to the SNL, like his Dennis Miller impression. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that had ever been done before. And To this day, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. And he still does it. I mean, to this day, you listen to his podcast yeah. and he breaks into the Dennis Miller impression. Yeah. And I, I always get a kick out of that. And, and, you know the the voice. I mean, it's a it's a cartoonish version of Dennis, but but it it, it sounds a lot like him too. And and, and he yeah. has the whole head waggle. He he wags his yeah. head <laughs> and has the little smirk on his face. And yeah. that yeah, that's the one one of the ones that I noted too, uh, for sure. Um, he, he another one where you know was Casey Kasem early yeah. on. He did a Casey Kasem impression, and that one actually stuck out to me. And I like to think about just impressions in general on the show. And I don't know how you feel about this, but I look at impressions as it's not enough to, to just sound like the person, to just mimic the person. There has to be a comedic angle about the person or something silly. You know, there has to be a comedic hook there that isn't just, oh my gosh, they sound like that person. And mm. the Casey Kasem early on, he debuted this in his second episode. Uh, it was a it was a weekend update piece that, that he came on and did. And I highlight Casey Kasem as an example of why Dana was so good at impressions is because if you remember the Casey Kasem one, it was really dark. He would use the hammy hammy Casey Kasem DJ voice, but talk about really dark material. That yeah. was the hook. 
This week, a viewer writes, Casey, whatever happened to Eddie Fontaine? I loved his hit song, Spank Me to Heaven, and was wondering if he still records. Bill Naper, Billings, Montana. Well, Bill, Eddie was accused of assaulting his manager with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. I don't know, is that something you see in, in uh, his other impressions, like that comedic hook that he always would find? Yeah, I do know you mentioned it. Yeah, well, that also, what you mentioned, what, I, what you just said is, yeah, like that's, that's again, a, a little bit of his dark humor seeping through. Because like, yeah, while he does sort of seem like, he does kind of present as like, you know, all American boy next door, I guess with his looks and his, you know, likability with, uh, like he seems like kind of very middle America, like, like everybody likes him. He's very mainstream, but he does have like that dark sense of humor through his, some of his stuff. You know, of course you, later on, we'd see that in the the Dana Carvey show, you know, the (laughs) ill-fated Dana Carvey show. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, that's a whole nother thing. But, um, and look, and you also see his dark humor and things like, um, you know, massive head wound Harry and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I did notice that, like it is, a, a few, I do notice a few impression impressionists do that, where they expect the impression to do a lot of the heavy lifting mm-hmm. and, and within a sketch, where they're like, "Oh, I'm a, I'm doing this spot on impression, and that should be enough to carry the sketch." And a lot of times, it's not. A lot of times, it's like, "Oh, that's a great impression. Now what?" <laughs> and exactly. like they they kind of have nowhere else to go. Whereas I think with Dana. He always had somewhere to go with his impressions, like, um, you know, the Jimmy Stewart impression when they did that. Uh, it's a wonderful life of, you know, lost ending. That was fantastic. Uh, that was pretty fantastic. Yeah, but it had, it was, they were going somewhere with it. And they were saying something as they were, you know, beating an old man. <laughs> it was like a darker version of the beloved Jimmy yeah. Stewart from It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> Again, his dark humor is, is is shining through right there. That's interesting. Um, that that's something that 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 a lot of people never really talked about with Dana. And you're right; he was this clean cut guy who who could he. I mean, he was from the Bay Area, but he could have been from Iowa or anywhere in Middle America right. uh, for all we could guess. So you're absolutely right. Like that was part of his charm. I think was that darkness that kind of yeah. seeped through. Yeah, yeah. He he had the, he had like a few things. Like he, I think maybe he also knew that he could maybe get away with a little bit more, because like America just liked him so much. That's why he was. So like he was like, I think I can get away with something that maybe something else, maybe somebody else couldn't get away with, like you know, Lyle the effeminate heterosexual or something like Mm -hmm. that. So like I think he he sort of played up to that. Yeah, so um, so you had mentioned uh, you had brought up one of his, his other famous characters, uh, Garth Algar from uh, from Wayne's World. Which, when Mike Myers came on the show um, a few episodes after Mike debuted, he and Dana uh, started doing the Wayne's World sketches. Uh, do you have any? I mean, what was your impressions of Wayne's World um, uh, when when they started doing those sketches? Uh, I mean, when I first saw it. I think because, you know, I was around at, like, teenage age when I first saw it. Like, I, I immediately liked it because it was just, it was just, like, this kind of very loose, very, you know, this very kind of loose, free-flowing sketch. They could just tell, like, oh, it's, like, two teenagers, quote-unquote, <laughs> in, a, in a basement just talking about girls and, you know, guitars and just making silly, goofy jokes that, like, me and my, me and my buddies would do. I, I related to it quite quite a bit so like and they just had like a really cool like ability to them and just like uh 
I don't know, just like a laid back kind of silly vibe to those whole sketches. Like immediately, I, I was like, I think like from what I remember though, the first time it aired, it did, I don't think it clicked very well with the audiences. So it took a while for the audience to find its rhythm. But like I remember watching it and like sort of almost immediately kind of digging it. It's Friday. It's ten thirty. It's time to party. I'm your excellent host, Wayne Campbell. With me, as always, is Garth. Party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. Okay, before we bring out our first guest, uh, Garth, what'd you get for Christmas? I got a Game Boy. Excellent. What else? A Batman poster of Kim Basinger. What a big. Yeah. No, Guff. Oh, yeah, and uh, you bought me the Nintendo Power Glove. Thanks, Wayne. Hey, hey, it's my pleasure. You're a bud. Swing! Swing! Yeah, yeah, I remember when, you know, some of my favorites were when they would do um, their, like, movie reviews, and they would just say, like, oh, this sucked, or uh, it sucked donkey balls, or... And then, or or Wayne would give like this eloquent review of one movie or something. I just like I like when they when Wayne and Garth were kind of like they did lists or like their top ten lists or they had right, like right. a sort of structure or, or uh, something to that. Uh, when Aerosmith appeared yeah. uh, on the show with them, that was <laughs> that was pretty fun. Yeah, with Tom Hanks in that sketch. It was Tom Hanks exactly. So you know, I I actually uh, I actually know Garth. Oh really? That, that's something that not. Yeah, I know Garth because uh, Garth was based off of uh, Dana's brother Brad. Yes, right, right. Yeah, because his brother Brad was kind of like a tech geek, kind of like soft spoken, kind of talk like that. And Brad created some software that one a company that I used to work for used. And sometimes Brad would come into the office to do training and to talk to management about the software, and he would just loiter and hang out <laughs> like oh, a few wow. feet from my desk. Oh, and wow. it was the most wild thing. And I would talk to, I would talk to him and he did talk like Garth a little bit. Like, I mean, <laughs> that's what he sounded like. And, and me, me and a coworker tried our best not to like freak out every time he came into the office because, because Garth was like right in front of us. So <laughs> yeah. no, I, I would freak out. Yeah. Like I freak, I mean, I'm sure for people who know, it, I'm sure he gets inundated with questions about his brother all the time. So it's hard not to be. Not, not to nerd out and be like, so what, what, what's, what's your brother like? And like, quite, yeah. you know, like a Chris Farley ask, talking to Paul McCartney or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think he brought up Dana maybe a couple of times just in conversation or he would say like, oh yeah, my brother did this or w- was in that movie. So we, we we did play it cool. But, you know, I, I think Garth means a lot to me uh, in that sense because I kind of interacted with the person who he's based off of. But I mean, gosh, made two movies out of that too i mean yeah we should talk about the uh, wayne's world and wayne's world too like do you remember seeing those when they came out yeah uh wayne's wayne's world 2 i don't know if i saw it in the theaters i might have i might i definitely think i remember seeing wayne's world the first one in the theater and i really i really liked it again it's like a lot of a lot of silly humor you know i, I mean teenage me look you, if you just say the word swing you already make me laugh that that it, it didn't take much to to get me giggling. Yeah, uh, I mean Tia Carrere. I mean, I I will say this. I will say that I really thought um, Ed O'Neill's character was like the unsung hero of that film. Like just to, just like to this day, like me, me and my friends say things like you know, oh, what was it like? I never did a crazy thing before in my life before that night. 
Like, he, like go back and <laughs> yeah. go, go back and watch Wayne's World because like he was doing some like low key like really hilarious stuff in there that was just just all these weird non sequiturs. He was like just demented. Yeah. monologues and stuff. I think um, going kind of going back and watching some of the Wayne's World sketches, I think that Ed O'Neill character from the movie kind of originated in a in a sketch on SNL. Oh. When Ed O'Neill hosted, he he appeared on Wayne's World, and I don't know if it was supposed to be that exact guy from the sketch into the movie, but it was a similar kind of guy, just kind of like a weird kind of right. spoke in a in a straight sort of speech pattern but he put but there was like a lot of demented <laughs> kind of right. things and behind I, that yeah i think at one point in the movie he says like you know uh, native americans believe if you stab a man in the winter the the, the spirit will seep out of the wounds <laughs> like oh my god yeah. or why did he have to come to me to die why did he have to come <laughs> to me to die <laughs> yeah and then wayne and garth are just like okay so yeah so that's some stuff that that you know i, th- I think that was an example of like a sketch that was beloved that turned into like a beloved movies yeah. and that speaks a lot to to i think how people just love dana and love the characters that that he played you had mentioned the mclaughlin group uh earlier and i actually want to segue into a little game that i want to play with you and then we'll talk about that so have you you played two truths and a lie are you familiar with that game uh yes i am all righty so so the topic now is the mclaughlin group and this is going to be the first mclaughlin group sketch i think the one that maybe a lot of people are familiar with um so in these sketches John McLaughlin would would start would bring up issues like right away when the sketch started. Issue number one, issue number two. So, right. so issues that John McLaughlin brought up to the panelists in the first McLaughlin group sketch. I'll name three of the issues, and one of the statements is false, and you have to spot the false one. Hit me. All right. So, an issue that John McLaughlin brought up to the panelists is there an afterlife? An issue that John McLaughlin brought up to the panelists: what is the best way to make an egg? <laughs> and an issue that John McLaughlin brought up to the panelists, what motivates me? Why do I conduct my show in this manner? <laughs> so which oh, wow. one is false? I'm going to go with uh, the second one. Which What's the best way to make an egg? Uh, you're correct. That that Woo! was not yes. That was not an issue that John McLaughlin uh, brought up to the panelists. But I can totally see him the way the way that that sketch sort of um, escalated to just ridiculousness. That's something that I, that came up to my mind. Like I I can see John McLaughlin yeah. asking him that. Um, so that's something that you had brought up earlier in the show. So so to tell me about what your memories are of the McLaughlin group. Uh, the McLaughlin group. I mean, well, the most memorable one is the one uh, you probably remember too, where there was that that music cue that came in accidentally too soon. Like, um, I forget. Was, yeah, for I forget which episode it was, but it was one where the McLaughlin group was the uh, the cold open, and then I think uh, so. At the end of the uh, the sketch, Dana as McLaughlin says, "All right, uh, is, you know, final question: How do how does SNL start?" usually start their show. And then somebody answered, they stayed live from New York on Saturday night. And then when he said that, the, the drummer of the live, of the band, like started drumming, but he wasn't supposed to. He was, oh. the, the sketch was still going. Mm-hmm. So he came in too soon. Dana heard that and he said, wrong to the drummer. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. Thunderous applause from, from everybody. Cause like, so that's a great, I mean, that was a great moment of like, um, 
a performer, like hearing somebody make a mistake and getting a laugh out of that mistake. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Dana, Dana is a, like a comedic genius. The fact that he's that quick on his feet in that pressure cooker, that, uh, that, that's, that can be SNL in a live setting. Uh, that that's hilarious. Uh, I remember another one that was a cold open. It was a Halloween episode of the McLaughlin group when, uh, John McLaughlin actually um, came on the show and he had a good sense of humor about it because when Dana does impressions, um, I think it's mostly out of it's mostly out of love, and I think this one was out of love too. Because if you've if anybody's out there has ever has not seen the McLaughlin Group, the real show, go on YouTube and watch a few, like watch and even skim through an episode, and you'll see that that Dana's impersonation in the show itself isn't too far off uh, of what the actual McLaughlin Group was. But I mean, you want to talk about chaotic sketches in a good way i mean that one was rapid fire just non-stop funny no it was fantastic i also liked the i guess the spinoff uh with the sinatra group where it had mm-hmm. uh, phil hartman as frank sinatra yeah. uh there was a sketch where it was like it was frank sinatra i think chris rock was uh luther campbell from two life crew uh jan hooks was Sinead o'connor and then it had like uh oh sting was billy idol and then have uh, mm-hmm. Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, like that's. I mean, well, that, that I mean that's Phil Hartman. That's a whole other topic, but like that's. But I mean, that, inspired. You know, the the, yeah. the McLaughlin Group sketch became so popular that it inspired spinoffs amongst the cast and and amongst uh, other recurring characters. You don't often see that, like somebody's recurring sketch or character inspiring somebody else in the show or other writers in the show to do a spinoff of that. Like yeah. that's, you know, that I think that says something quite a bit. So yes, if you, if, 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 if anybody listening out there hasn't checked out the McLaughlin group sketches, please do, uh, please do yourself a favor and go check those out. Something else that, that popped out to me was his Johnny Carson and I don't know if you have have any memories of him doing Johnny Carson on SNL, but to me that like that was close to peak Carvey uh, right there in those Carson impressions. Yeah, no, it was pretty. It was pretty spot on. It was pretty perfect. It was, I mean, him and of course Phil Hartman as uh, his Ed McMahon were fantastic. <laughs> and again, you are it, correct, it, sir. See exactly, exactly. Like those two impressions are like the. The impressions that other people base their Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon impressions off of, like they put down the blueprint. I don't I mean I don't know how long he had that impression just like locked up in the chamber, how long he'd been working on. But like when he came, you know, when he, it was like fully formed when he debuted it on the SNL, like uh, it was always pretty fantastic. I mean, one of my favorite memories of it was, um, I guess it was like a, it was like in the early '90s or so, maybe late '80s. But uh, uh, Carcinio Hall, yes. Carcinio show, because basically it was like um, it was around the time where Arsenio Hall, his show was like the hot new late night talk show in, in late night, and like uh, Johnny Carson was kind of a old you know bit of a dinosaur at the time. So they did this sketch called Carcinio, where our, where Johnny Carson sort of mimicked Arsenio Hall in order to like sort of get some uh, relevance again. So it's Johnny Carson with a high top fade. <laughs> 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 and just just acting like uh, Arsenio Hall in like a you know bright red suit, <laughs> and you know talking about doing the wild thing, and, and yeah, my god, it was yeah. it was fantastic. All right, all right, 
That is nice. We are back. Boy, do they sound fine. That is my posse, Ed. Yes. Did, did you know that? It's not called a band anymore. It's called a posse. Weird, wild stuff. That it is, sir. Yes. <laughs> a posse. A posse. I did not know that. I did not know that. Now, some of you at home might not understand some of this, some of this lingo, which earlier in the day our staff compiled from the streets. Now, when I said my guests were in my house, what I meant was in the studio. Yes. That is some weird, <laughs> weird, wild stuff. Yeah, Arsenio on his show would shout out, like if somebody would happen to be hanging out in the audience or in the dog pound or whatever they would call it. With Arsenio, it was usually somebody cool. Um, but on the Carcinio show that you had just mentioned, he shouted out professional golfer Tom Kite. <laughs> that was that was hanging out uh, back there, and then George Went came on and and was like, "Hey man, like, why are, you don't have to be doing this. Like, why are, why are you doing this, Johnny? This is you know." Yeah. So yeah, that was definitely uh, as a child that Carcinio sketch is one that really uh, stayed with me. Uh, yeah, I do remember that like, George Went was there, and he was he was like trying to talk him down out of it and Carson's like no these these people in the audience they love it they, I go whoop 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 and they go whoop 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 and I think George Wentz says yeah those people are idiots <laughs> they don't know what they're doing mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> definitely and with his Johnny Carson impression uh I'm not sure that Carson did he say weird wild stuff on his show I don't think so see that's the thing with yeah. with Dana's impressions he would like say something and repeat it and that would be kind of like the catchphrase and then that thing would be attached to the person he's impersonating whether that person ever said it or not it's, a, it's kind of like how when people do that Seinfeld impression and it's like oh, I gotta tell you oh, I wanna know I don't right. think Seinfeld ever said that or he didn't really talk like that but it, it, it sounds like he would it, it sort of captures his essence so exactly. it's weird how like something like that sort of gets attached to the original person. Like he captured George Bush's essence with saying not going to do it. And I don't think Bush ever said not going to do it. And, and then Dana will say himself that sometimes he'll just, he's instead of saying not going to do it, he just goes, nah, 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 nah. like he just, it's just like the, the rhythm right. of, of it to him. Like, the, you know, same with Ross Perot. Uh, like you brought up, you like, can I finish? Can I finish? Can I finish one time? Like, like it's almost like a song. It's almost like a rhythm and a song uh, yeah. to Dana's impressions that, you know, that it transcends more than just mimicking the person. And you you brought up the perfect word. Like, it was the essence mm-hmm. of, of the person. That's what Dana was just so good at capturing. Yeah, and absolutely. He was able to capture, like, uh, yeah, like he was able to capture, like, just something about a certain person, just maybe something like a small tick or just some some type of body language or the way he spoke or speech pattern. And he was able to like sort of fixate on it, fixate on it and uh, focus on it and just sort of, he's able to make an entire pres- impression around that one little thing. I mean, it's pretty fantastic when you think about yeah. it. Yeah, it's great stuff. Uh, is there anything else um, from Dana's time at SNL that uh, listeners um, should know know about when thinking about his hall of fame candidacy well again if you want to talk about his dark uh his dark sense of humor i mean we could you know grumpy old man we have to yes. mention that that which again it's it's based, it, again another character no name he'd only come out during a weekend uh update segment and he would just talk about how how things aren't are were better back then better than they are now but as he would talk 
you you would he would he would kind of say things like, "Oh wait, like as he was talking, you realize that stuff wasn't better back then, but mm. you liked it because it happened back then, back when you grew up." Today, everybody spoiled run. When I was a boy, we didn't have these video games. We made up our own games, like chew the bark off the tree. You and your friends would find a nice oak tree and just start chewing the skin off of it. And there were no winners. Everybody was a loser. It rotted your teeth and left your intestines scarred and knotted. And that's the way it was, and we liked it. We loved it. And we like, liked it. Yeah. <laughs> we liked again another cat. And we liked it. Yep. That's something that my friends and I, because um, we were big comedy nerds growing up, that that's uh, I, I, that's stuff that we would repeat. And and we liked it. <laughs> and that's because of Dana, man. That's yeah. That's so awesome. That's a perfect perfect example to bring up something that I highlighted uh, definitely too. <laughs> you mentioned too. The Dana Carvey Show. So that was his sketch show on ABC, I believe. They ran it in 96. Did you watch that when it aired, that piece of insanity? I actually did. Like, um, because, like, oh, I watched it back then. But then I also, like, kind of rewatched some of the episodes because um, we talked about that on SNL. Because, like, there was a documentary about it recently. It was called Too Funny to Fail. It was on Hulu. I believe it's still there. But, uh, yeah, I mean... On paper, the show should have worked because, again, it's a it's Dana Carvey. It's his type of humor, but like he was he wanted to go more darker with it, like a lot very uh, money python esque you could say. Mm-hmm. I mean, Louis C.K. wrote on it. Charlie Kaufman, the director, worked on that show. Wow. Um, Robert Smigel, I believe, worked on it. Uh, Steve Colbert and Steve Carell yeah. acted acted on the show. Like on paper, it had everything going for it. And like uh, they also interviewed uh, like Bill Hader, he was also in the documentary too, because like back when he was a kid, he loved the show too. And like they t- they talk about the like the issues with the show because it was a one thing it was on ABC, like in their primetime hours. Second law, they put it on right after uh, Home Improvement, which <laughs> they they, right. they they count that for their down because like they weren't people weren't ready for this uh, you know Home Improvement. And then going right into a, an opening sketch of Dana Carvey dressed as Bill Clinton with uh, multiple nipples. And yeah, that was <laughs> the very first sketch of in the very first episode, wasn't it? Like, that's how... Yeah. Like, it was just Dana and them saying, this is what the show is. Like, right up top. <laughs> yeah, they, they came in hot. And I, I, <laughs> yes. I, think them, I think they said they, like, really fought for that, too. Because, like, the mm-hmm. network was like, oh, I don't know about this, man. <laughs> and, like, I think... Uh, uh, what's it, Dino Stamatopoulos, I think, who also worked on Community, wrote on that show too, and like they, mm-hmm. a lot of Conan people worked on that show, but like they were like sticking to their guns, like no, we have to take a stand, we have to set the tone right off the bat about what this show is going to be, and uh, from what I understand, like the moment people saw that, like the ratings took a like a nosedive, like people turned it off immediately after after like the first yeah. five minutes. Oh, but yeah, I, 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 I stuck with it. I really liked the show. That was hilarious. It was really good. And I have a vague memory because I think I was 14 or 15, actually, when it aired. And I have a vague memory of watching it with my parents or at least my mom in the same room. And she's oh. she's a big SNL fan. So, like, 
when it came on and we were excited, like, oh, Dana Carvey has a new show or whatever. And then that first sketch, uh, you mentioned Bill Clinton with all the nipples and he, he, the whole concept was he's a nurturer or something and he's going to nurture the entire country. Yeah. He wants to feed the earth. He's going to feed the earth or something. And so, yeah. So I have a memory of being really embarrassed (laughs) turning red uh, when that, as you should. (laughs) Cause I think it's one of those things where it's like we said, like, Dana Carvey kind of has this wholesome image that people kind of see him as like, you know, middle, middle America, you know, lovable mainstream guy. But like, he also has that darkness in him. And on the show, we got more of that darkness than I think people were expecting and were not ready for it. Like, I think like if you're a fan of shows like Monty Python or Mr. Show, you'd like the Dana Carvey show. If you're if not, then it, it might not be for you. Yeah. So, yeah, his 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 work after SNL. I mean, he appeared in stuff here and there, but you know, he it was kind of sparse. I think he did some stand up here and there too. Uh, currently, he has uh, his podcast with David Spade, the Fly on the Wall podcast, which is really it can uh, sometimes be a good look at at the show in particular. I know he and David kind of they talk about the show, but a lot things outside of the show too. So, so um, I think that got renewed uh, for season two as well. But yes, I mean Dana thrived, and I, you know, he his time at SNL was just so memorable and legendary. I don't think he could come close to matching or topping it um, after his SNL career. Yeah. So before we head out, just you know, if you want to give the listeners a quick summary of why you think Dana Carvey should be in the SNL Hall of Fame, like I said before, I'll reiterate it. So many cast members are lucky. Lucky if they get one reoccurring character with a catchphrase that like sort of permeates SNL history. And my man Dana Carvey has four. Garth Algar, Hans and Franz, the church lady, George H.W. Bush, the, the you know, the ultimate George W. Bush H.W. Bush impression, the one that mm-hmm. everybody bases their impression off of. Like you can say a church lady line, you know. Well, isn't that special today? And people would get it. You know, we will pump you up. You, mm-hmm. No way, way, Garth Algar. And again, like his laundry list of impressions, Ross Perot, Casey Kasem, McLaughlin Group, Johnny Carson. Like he's, I, again, like so many impressionists that I can think of, maybe have like three or four good impressions in their arsenal. And he, this dude had like so many <laughs> I mean, again, doing an impression of Dennis Miller right next to Dennis Miller. <laughs> I mean, the dude's undeniable. So mm-hmm. that's, that's my pitch. I mean, Dana Carvey, undeniable. Undeniable, Darren Patterson says. Dana Carvey, undeniable. I tend to agree with him. I think uh, this is a lock. I've got to say, I, I don't usually go out on a limb like this and uh, put my, you know, put my behind in the air, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to say, yeah, Dana Carvey is a lock as a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, will he come close to Will Ferrell's mark? I don't know. I don't know if he'll get up into the high 90s like Ferrell did. Well, Ferrell was a low 90, but I don't know if he'll get uh, above 92%. Um, but it'll be interesting to find out, won't it? 
Darren, we really want to thank you. Uh, if you're out there and you don't listen to SNL nerds, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life, frankly? You need to start listening to this podcast. Darren is uh, the co-host over there, and it's a great podcast. Now, what we're going to do is what we always do is we are going to cement the deal here for Dana Carvey and play a sketch that was handpicked by our co-host, Thomas Senna, this is the McLaughlin Group, and this is a really terrific, terrific sketch. Uh, it's got the rat-a-tat-tat delivery that uh, Dan Aykroyd made famous, but this is Carvey doing it. It's uh, political, but very funny. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. It's really good. You've got to give it a listen, so why don't we do that right now? This is Dana Carvey and the McLaughlin Group on the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. From the nation's capital, the McLaughlin Group, an unrehearsed, hastily assembled program presenting inside opinions and forecasts on major issues of the day. With Jack Germond of the Baltimore Sun, syndicated columnists Pat Buchanan and Eleanor Cliff, and Morton Kondracki of the New Republic. Now here's the moderator, John McLaughlin. Issue number one, the commander-in-chief in Mexico. Bush wants a free trade agreement. What does President Salinas want? Pat Buchanan. John Salinas is playing up his recent economic success and steering his Jack country toward... I don't think it's so much what Salinas wants, it's what Eleanor the Mexicans... Cliff. John, this is just another case of President Bush trying to push a policy. I'm not sure Bush has that... a policy, which Excuse is part me, of the Pat, problem. I believe Eleanor has the floor. Thanks, John. The hard truth is that Bush needs Salinas more than Salinas. More I think this agreement talk is basically a Wrong! pipe dream. Wrong! There will be a free trade agreement. It will take place within one year. Issue number two. Maggie out, major in. The new British prime minister. Some believe he's a Thatcher clone. Will he carry out her policies? Just come on. Well, Thatcherites are privately rejoicing. Wrong! More tone. You see, Thatcher endorsed... Wrong! On a scale of 1 to 14, 1 being lowest degree of likelihood, 14 being absolute metaphysical certitude, what are the chances of major continuing Thatcher's alliance with Bush vis-a-vis the Iraqis? Eleanor Cliff. I'd say about a 12. Pat Buchanan! Hold it, 14 is most night. Yes. I'd have to say about a 9. Chuck Jamon! Lower, like 5. More tone! 8. Wrong! The actual degree of likelihood is 6.5. Issue number three, life after death. Some pundits say it doesn't exist. Theologians disagree. Is there an afterlife? Chuck Chamon! I, uh, really don't know. Motone! Well, it's not my fear. Fuck you, I'd like to believe, but it's Wrong! Hard to... There is life after death. The soul does not ascend to heaven, but rather rests in a limbo state that varies depending on the karma of the spirit. Issue number four, intelligent beings on other planets, yes or no? Fuck you, Cannon! I would think so, but... Eleanor Cliff! Don't know. Jack Jamon! Me either. Morton Town! Well, no one really knows. Wrong! (laughs) There is intelligent life in the 11th galaxy on the planet Neptor, which will conquer Earth in the year 5482, utilizing us for slave labor and the Shalonian salt mines. Issue number five, what number am I thinking of? Pat Buchanan! Geez, uh, 82. Wrong, uh, Eleanor Clift. Uh, is it between one don't and a hundred? Don't skirt the issue. I, 40. Wrong, Morton Tyne. 212. Wrong, Jacarino. Two. Wrong, the correct answer is 134, 134. Issue number six, what did you have for breakfast today? Eleanor. Some cantaloupe. Morton Town, USA. I had poached eggs and toast. Jack Jamondo. Bacon and eggs. Patty Patty, buke buke. 
I'm thinking waffles, maybe Wrong! a little. Wrong! You all had special K with banana. <laughs> issue number seven. What is issue 14 going to be? Some say it will deal with an economic matter. Others believe it will involve Germany. More teeny tiny tabletop. Oh, acid rain? Wrong! Eleanor, gee, I think you're swollen off. I have. <laughs> I have Wrong! no idea. Wrong! You know quite well, you're just shy. Mondo, Jackalope, G-Man, Mania, Jack. Well, it might be. I'm not finished with your name, Jamonical. <laughs> Jack-O-Lantern, J-G, Jummy, Jummy, Jamie, Mayhem. You're insane, John. Wrong! I'm perfectly sane. Everyone else, however, is insane and trying to steal my magic bag. St. Patrick of Buchanonomics. I think I'm going to leave, John. Wrong! You can't leave. All the doors are locked from the outside. Next issue. What motivates me? Why do I conduct my show in this manner? Mundo! You're a jerk. Eleanor! Really large ego? Wrong! I was neglected by my parents, and I overcompensate to shadow my feeling that I have an inadequate intellect. Next issue! So, you didn't know your parents very well? Wrong! Wrong? Wrong! Right? Wrong! Next week, the SNL probe continues. Is my money in a savings and loan? If so, what's my account number? Bye-bye! That is textbook. The heightening and um, expansion of the premise, you know, you, it starts out relatively sane, and uh, it just picks up and goes from there. And the audience is loving it. They buy into every second of it, and... It's really quite great. And Carvey's rat-a-tat-tat, you know, delivery is reminiscent of Hall of Famer Dan Aykroyd. I think uh, it's it's fair to say that uh, Carvey will soon be in the hall with Dan Aykroyd. But, of course, that's up to you. You'll have to vote when the time comes, when the, when the season is wrapping up. We'll do some roundtables, and then it'll be voting time again. But I'm getting way ahead of myself because we have a whole season of wonderful guests and wonderful nominees to discuss. 14 more, including next week, we've got a heck of an episode with Buck Henry being the nominee in the host category. Buck Henry, very, very ubiquitous with the show in the 70s, could have been on the show in the 80s if it had worked out. Is he a Hall of Famer? Ah, by, my, by my metric, it is. We'll have to wait and see, though. That's what I've got for you this week. Thanks for coming out. Make sure to tell all your friends. We're here, and uh, this is season three. So there's that. Now, if you would do me a favor, on your way out, as you're walking down the hall, past the Weekend Update exhibit, turn out the lights, because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed. Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Make sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at SNLHOF. This is Doug Denant saying, this is Doug Denant saying, see you next week. and such.